Ecclesiastes, starting in chapter 1, we're going to read from verse 1. Ecclesiastes 1, verse 1. The words of the preacher, the son of David, king in Jerusalem. Vanity of vanities, says the preacher. Vanity of vanities, all is vanity. What does man gain by all the toil at which he toils under the sun? A generation goes and a generation comes, but the earth remains forever. The sun rises and the sun goes down and hastens to the place where it rises. The wind blows to the south and goes around to the north. Around and around goes the wind, and on its circuits the wind returns. All streams run to the sea, but the sea is not full. To the place where streams flow, there they flow again. All things are full of weariness. A man cannot utter it. The eye is not satisfied with seeing, nor the ear filled with hearing. What has been is what will be, and what has been done is what will be done. And there is nothing new under the sun. Is there a thing of what you have said, see this is new? It has already been in the ages before us. There is no remembrance of former things, nor there will be any remembrance of latter things yet to be among those who come after. Let me pray. Father, we ask that as we attend to your word, as we understand it, that we would seek to sit under it and to hear it, that you would help us understand the wisdom of the preacher, of this teacher, as we assemble together and and hear your word together, we ask that you would help us to see that life under the sun, life apart from you, is vapor, is vanity, it's futile. Father, that we would look to you and rejoice in you and be thankful that in you, because of the work you have done through Jesus, life has purpose. And that there is an eternity with you. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we're diving into wisdom literature. And we're starting with this book, Ecclesiastes, which um, is, is from the Greek title, which th- this word ekklesia in the Greek, which means um, the assembly. And the word Ecclesiastes is because the preacher, in a sense, is, is preaching to an assembly of people. They've assembled, and he's preaching to them. And we wanted to dive into this particular text because it's, it's when he's driving, the preacher's bringing together these people and he's preaching to them what's called wisdom literature. Because he wants to help them to be wise. And the preacher may or may not be King Solomon. We're not really sure. He seems to identify himself as King Solomon or at least put himself in the place of King Solomon as he makes his argument. It really doesn't matter either way whether it's King Solomon because the point of the literature is the same. The wisdom that's being communicated is the same. And the wisdom that's being taught to us is not easy and it's not formulaic. I want you to hear that. The wisdom that you're gonna be here here communicated through this book is not easy and it is not formulaic. In other words, what do I mean by that? There's, There's probably about three different positions I see people take with regard to wisdom in life. How to walk before God, how to live out life. We can talk about the wise and the fools, but the fools are broken up into categories and many of us play the fool often, right? And there's three ways toward wisdom that are pretty lazy that we tend to, we tend to go after. One is we can tend to be sort of hyper-charismatic or hyper-spiritual. 
What do I mean by that? I don't mean to take a shot at spirituality or, charis- or, or being charismatic. What I'm talking about is this idea that we're hyper-charismatic or hyper-spiritual. We think that the way that God leads us is somehow apart from his word, and so what we do is we, we pursue life by getting these sort of feelings or intuitions from God, and that's how we make decisions. And then we say, well, the Lord told me to do this, and then maybe it's even contrary to the word of God, and we say, but the word of God says, well, the Lord told me. You guys follow what I'm talking about there? You know what hyper sort of spiritual living looks like. The other way toward wisdom that's a bit lazy is this, what, what you might call fundamentalist perspective, right? Fundamentalism. We talk about the fact that in some sense we're a fundamentalist church, but when we say that we mean we're putting the fun back in fundamentalism, right? You know, <laughs> you follow on that? We believe that there are fundamental truths. When I'm talking about fundamentalism, I'm not talking about fundamentalism theologically. I'm not saying that there aren't fundamental doctrines or truths we believe in. We do. What I mean by fundamentalism here is a sociological or cultural phenomenon, where essentially what we do is we, we have this wisdom in fundamentalism. Thou shalt not step on the slippery slope. See, that's the 11th commandment you weren't aware of, Right? Don't step on it, because when you step on it, you will always fall into sin. And the problem with that is, it's very easy and very formula-based, but it's also very lazy. In fact, there's there's an artist named Derek Webb who wrote a song really about that called New Law, and he basically talks about, don't don't teach me, you know, wisdom, essentially. Just just tell me what to do. Just give me a new law. I don't want to have to learn God's counsel and think. I just want you to add on to these laws so I sort of know what I can and can't do. Uh, teenagers used to do this to me all the time when I was a youth pastor. They'd come to me and say, Chad, I just want to know how far is too far, right? Like, draw a line in the sand for me so that I can step my toes up to it and, and feel sort of guilt-free, right? And i tell them, look, look, you're, first of all, you're ans- asking the wrong question, the real question is how holy is too holy, right? That's the real question. Is, and then if I go beyond that, what if I give you the line, no kissing? Are you going to tell me that you're going to be free of lust and you're going to be totally pure if you just hold hands, really? I mean, you know, see, I can just draw these lines and it seems real easy and neat and tidy. But the question is, when, when does a person do the work to say what you should be saying to his teenagers? Get to know the Lord. Get to know his word. And it will be clear to you when you know him and his word what you ought to or not, ought not to be doing in this situation. It's called wisdom. The other approach is just pure liberalism. Do you know what I mean by that? The laziness. And I don't mean political liberal, liberalism here. I'm talking about that. I'm talking about the sort of moral relativism. Uh, there is no wisdom in this situation it's just whatever you feel like doing right there aren't objective rights and wrongs it's just sort of whatever you feel like at the time and so it becomes a laziness i don't need to go to a multitude of wise counselors and ask men or women who know the word what would you tell me to do in this situation because there isn't really a right or wrong answer ever and so i just do whatever i feel like doing it's another lazy sort of approach. And our desire is to sort of knock all of us out of this idea that it's easy and formulaic. 
that it can be approached through some lazy man's method. Instead, to let you know that you have to become familiar with the whole counsel of God. You have to know him and walk in his ways. You have to trust him. His Holy Spirit has to be at work in you. You have to be looking to Jesus all the time. And then you look at your situations, and then you ask other people who are walking with Jesus as well how to handle the situation, and then you start to walk in wisdom. I mean, there are things in Ecclesiastes that you're going to read, you're going to hear, and you're going to think, that just sounds downright contradictory. We understand the preacher isn't contradicting himself. The preacher is talking about, in this situation, we apply this understanding. And in this situation, we apply this understanding. He's not talking about moral relativism either. For example, in the Proverbs, we get this very clear example. Answer a fool. Well, sorry, let me put it this way. Don't answer. It starts off. Don't answer a fool according to his folly. Don't answer him according to his folly. You're going to puff him up. You're going to fall into it, et cetera, et cetera. Don't do it. The very next proverb, answer a fool according to his folly. Unless he gets puffed up. Well, what is it? Are we going to believe that the writer of Proverbs and that, the author at that point, was too stupid to recognize he contradicted himself the next sentence? Or are we going to understand that the writer of the proverb there realized that in some circumstances, when I know a person and I know the situation and a person is acting a fool, this is the best time for me to not answer him according to his folly because I'm not going to be helpful. So I'm not going to answer in a foolish way and be sarcastic and all this because it's not good for this person. But then this other person I know so well, they're so arrogant that if I don't come back at them with the same foolishness, they're not going to get it. And I have to make that decision, and that's a wisdom call. You guys understand me on that? And we don't want our people to be lazy when it comes to wisdom. We want them to know God and his word and walk in it. So that's why we're getting into this series in Ecclesiastes, because we want our church to get a better handle on wisdom. And in this particular section of Ecclesiastes that I'm dealing with today, We're really talking about this idea, if you look here in verse 3, what does man gain by all the toil at which he toils under the sun? In other words, in this particular section of Ecclesiastes, we are now looking at the question of of wealth and the pursuit of material things. It's materialism, essentially. That's what we're coming after. What do we really gain? What do we really profit? I want you to think about the ways we seek to accumulate wealth as a culture. Because we're always seeking to accumulate wealth. In fact, we're so impatient about accumulating wealth that we, we come up with these schemes, right? There are whole infomercials where you can sit around and watch some guy who you know is making all his money off selling this program to you, telling you to get rich if you buy his program, right? Or multi-level marketing scheme. I'm not going to come after all of it. You follow me, right? The lottery, which is a, po- which is a tax for the poor and the stupid. That's what the lottery is. People who can't do math. And I've, I've paid that poor, stupid tax multiple times myself. But the point is, <laughs> the point is, that's what it is. Okay. Look at gambling addictions. Game shows. Who wants to be a millionaire? We're obsessed with this question. And we're always wanting to buy more as well. Whether it's better cars or better houses or better furniture or better clothes or better bodies. 
because our minds are so set on the here and now, we never quite have enough, do we? It's always if, when I get this, then I'll finally have arrived. I'll finally be happy. We always want a little more. We always want a little more. We're materialistic. Have you guys ever heard of John D. Rockefeller? Heard of John D. Rockefeller? John D. Rockefeller was the richest man in the world probably in the last two centuries. In fact, his accumulated wealth, if you take it and compare it with the accumulated wealth of the United States, right, was at the same percentage of accumulated wealth compared to the wealth of the United States as if you took today Bill Gates and Warren Buffett, the two richest men in the world, and put them together. That take the number one, number two richest men in the world, put them together, and you have the wealth of John D. Rockefeller. He owned what was called Standard Oil. Standard Oil was a monopoly that ended up being broken up via antitrust laws, etc., in the early 1900s. When it was broken up, there were four, well, there were four different oil companies that came out of it. Um, I can't even pronounce one of the names, but all four of them are still in the top 50 oil companies in the world. I'll give you three of them: Chevron, Exxon, and Mobil. He owned all those, and then some. He uh, was known as a great entrepreneur. He bought out all his competitors. In fact, he's quoted as saying that the way to make money is to buy when blood is running in the streets. Isn't that nice? If competitors didn't want to sell at a fair price, John Rockefeller would promise to drive them into bankruptcy. So I'm going to drive you, into, you, you sell at a fair price now, or what I'm going to do is I'm going to drive you into bankruptcy, and then I'm going to pick you up real cheap at auction. At the same time, this guy is a tragically great contradiction, which, by the way, historically, if we look back, we're all contradictions in some way. Everybody is, and so will we be. But on the flip side of John D. Rockefeller, he's incredibly philanthropic. John D. Rockefeller gave 10% of all of his income to his church. He was a North American Baptist. He gave 10% of all his income every time to his church. He also uh, um, participated in several other charities, John Hopkins, um, and a lot of what's done there is because of him. Initially, University of Chicago, do you know that used to be a little Baptist college until John Rockefeller poured serious money into it? He gave to various other charities. He would walk around and actually give out money to poor, and children on the, poor people and children on the streets. This, this is the contrast and the contradiction that this guy lived. But what I find most interesting about him is He's the richest man in the world. And when he was asked this question, someone came to him and said, Mr. Rockefeller, one question for you. How much money is enough money? And his answer was, just a little bit more. Just a little bit more. That's a universal problem. And it isn't a new problem. It was a problem for the Jews when Ecclesiastes was written. You might think that this is the first time we've been in the kind of Society when people are healthy, or excuse me, are, are pursuing wealth and they're desiring more than anything else, they're desiring to pursue some sort of materialistic goods and things. You might think that's, this is the first time that's happened. It isn't. You might think this is the first time this is a pluralistic sort of society where secular atheism is increasingly ruling the day in the culture. It isn't the first time. This is the society that the, that the Jews are living in in Ecclesiastes as well. They are living in a time in which, in which their economy was shifting 
because of the Greco-Roman world and its influences, and their economy was shifting, and they could make fortunes quickly. Life was becoming secularized, and they began to see increasing their money as their hope. And they always wanted a little more. A little more was always the answer. And the preacher, this man of wisdom, is coming to them to warn them about this. I want you to be wise and not fools. And so he says this. Look at what he says in verse 1. The words of the preacher. This is him identifying himself. The son of David, king in Jerusalem. And then verse 2. Vanity of vanities, says the preacher. Vanity of vanities. All is vanity. He actually uses um, this term, vanity of vanities, he uses it 38 times in this letter. And this is actually an inclusio, and, and, and what, so you know, if you're, if you're familiar with Hebrew literature, which most of the people in here I'm sure are not, there was a device they used, a very literary, various literary devices they used. One of them is called an inclusio. It's a literary device, which is where they would take a statement like vanity of vanities, all is vanity, and they would put it at the beginning. It's like a bookend. Here's the beginning. Marks this. Now toward the end, we're going to put another bookend. We're going to say that same statement again so that you know that this whole thing that I'm writing is caught up under this idea. You follow me on that? They're like bookends for the statement. If you look at chapter 12 of Ecclesiastes, keep your hand there in chapter 1, and look at chapter 12, you'll see this bookend. In verse 8, you'll see the other side of it. Vanity of vanity, says the preacher. All is vanity. Comes after it again. What does this word vanity mean? When we think of vanity, we think about looking in the mirror and being vain, and, and, and that, that actually works to some degree because the problem with looking in the mirror and being constantly concerned with how you look is that your looks are fleeting, aren't they? You watch them disappearing and going away, and it's increasingly a disappointing task to look in the mirror, right? As life goes on. Because it's fleeting. The idea here is that something is futile, it's fleeting. It's short-lived and quickly passing. It's like a breath on a cold morning. You guys ever go out in the cold morning and you just you breathe like this, and then you look at the breath come out, and you can see the substance, and then what happens? It goes away. It's a vapor. It's there for a little short time, but then it's gone. And what he's saying is, is that life is vanity. It's a vapor. Here for a little while, and it's gone. And the preacher is warning them that this is what life is like, not for everyone, but this is what life is like for all those who live life under the sun. You'll hear that phrase, under the sun or under the heavens, multiple times. Under the sun is a phrase talking about everything that's temp happening in time from a human perspective apart from God. It's like, it's, well, everything that happens under the sun, in other words, during our regular time, separating God out of the picture, these are all the things that happen under the sun. Men go to work, men go to school, people get married, they have babies, they do all these things under the sun. You separate it from God, everything done under the sun, on earth, that's all the things we do. Under the heavens would be a geographical distribution, it means all over the earth. Under the sun means, it's talking about the temporal 
idea, so it's in time, okay? So when he says this, he's saying, basically, if you're a secular atheist, which is how these people are living, then everything you're doing under the sun, under the heavens, on earth, throughout time, is vanity. It amounts to nothing in the end. It amounts to nothing. He uses that word under the sun 29 times in this thing. And the point of this whole book is that life apart from God, life apart from an eternal perspective is fleeting. It's utterly futile. You can buy a new car and it wears out. You can buy the newest technology and six months later they came out with the newest one and it's old already. You can work as hard as you want at getting your body in good shape and it's still gonna break down over time. Your home always needs repairs. On and on it goes. Here today, gone tomorrow. That's the perspective of this book. I want you to think about what he's coming after. I want you to think about life from a bit from the secular atheist perspective, okay? I'm going to give you a short lesson. If you're taking any notes, please cease and desist here because I'm going to throw terms at you that I'm going to define and you're going to be trying to write those terms down and you're not going to hear the definition. You're going to think it doesn't make any sense what I'm saying, okay? So it doesn't, I just want you to get a hold of this. You don't have to remember it. There isn't a test afterward, okay? So it's okay. I just want you to get a handle on it. From the secular atheist perspective, we are essentially randomly arranged protons, neutrons, and electrons, that's it. The only real ontological, that means my essence or being, the only real ontological distinction between me and my podium is the way that my protons, neutrons, and electrons are arranged versus the way the protons, neutrons, and electrons are arranged for my podium. So while the secular atheist can talk about meaning and purpose, to their lives, and while they can talk about morality and immorality, and they can talk about what they consider to be the true, the good, and the beautiful, the fact is they only postulate these things on the back of constructs that they pull out of their secular thin air. That in fact, there really is no foundation for those concepts. Education, work, morality, beauty, history, happiness, Sadness is all ultimately the meaningless, mechanistic happenings of randomly arranged protons, neutrons, and electrons. That's all it is. That's all it is. I, I, I've had some debates with some professors at universities where it's actually been like, you know, an on-air debate. And I, I point out the irony in, in, in this discussion um, and, and, and really, when we even start it, I actually thank them for the debate at the beginning. I just want to thank you for coming and debating me because just by being here, you're, 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 actually, you're actually agreeing with me that I'm right. They're like, what? What are you talking about? Well, the fact is, the fact is that if you don't believe there really is anything metaphysical, that means above or beyond physics, the natural realm, the material, if there's really nothing beyond that, or at least nothing that we can really know, that's the whole field called epistemology, the, the, how you know, the science of knowing or believing. If there's nothing that we can really know or nothing that's really there, then why are you here debating me about it in the first place? 
And at, on what grounds do you ever declare that something I say is false? In fact, I'm not even sure language is intelligible from your perspective, nor is math intelligible, nor is this whole debate intelligible. The fact that two sets of randomly arranged protons, neutrons, and electrons are together debating the meaning of life is nonsense. And then I throw him a jab that's really not fair. I say, besides, I don't spend so much time thinking about the non-existence of unicorns. Right? I don't believe they exist. I don't write books about them or debate about them. Anyway, so, side note. The, it's, it's, un, it's, it's really unfair, but it's always funny. So here, here's the thing. <laughs> but we can talk about the fact. We can talk about the fact that, that they don't have a basis they don't have a basis for even having these kinds of discussions and that look at the irony and look at the, the contradiction that's occurring in the fact that they're even here debating me. But, and, and we can point the finger at them and say, look, ho, ho, ho. But here, here's the thing. How many of you are practical atheists? Let's get right down to it. How many of you are practical atheists? In other words, at least in their case, they're living consistently with what they say they believe. They're living as if God doesn't exist because they don't believe he does. Whereas I hear all these other people saying, I believe God exists, but we live like practical atheists. Hear that? As if he's not there. As if he has no bearing in our lives and nothing to say to us. As if what matters is the here and now. And so when I lose my car or my house or my wife, when I lose any of that, I'm devastated. Life is over. I may as well put a bullet in my head because all I ever thought about was the here and now. That's all I cared about or thought about. So before you go take a jab at them, at least in some sense, they're more consistent than you. Sometimes they're more consistent than me. That, that's, that's the way it is, isn't it? We're admitting it, and that's what the preacher is coming after. How many of us are living as if he doesn't exist? How many of us are living that way? Look at the first reflection of the preacher. Here's his first reflection. Verse three. What does man gain by all the toil at which he toils under the sun? In other words, what he's saying is your, your, your work, your toil, gains you nothing. He's looking at what's gained from life with all your work. And the word gain, that word there, what does man gain, appears nine times in Ecclesiastes. It appears nowhere else in the whole Old Testament. It doesn't appear anywhere else in the whole Old Testament. What does the mean, word mean? It comes from a verb that means to be left over. That's what the verb is, to be left over. So something's left over. And so when you're talking about to be left over from what? For example, if you start a business, you pay expenses and you have income. Hopefully you get all the income from your business and you pay out your expenses and then you have money left over. That's if you're a good businessman, okay? <laughs> you have money left over. And the money left over is what we call your profit, right? Or your gain. Your profit. That's what he's talking about here. And he says that all our work under the sun gains or profits us nothing. Hear that? Gives you no profit. In other words, without God, there is no real profit or gain. And he provides four analogies to strengthen this point. Look at these four analogies that he provides to strengthen this point. The first one is in verse four. A generation goes 
and a generation comes, but the earth remains forever. And he reverses the order of how we would normally expect that phrase to be used, right? We'd usually expect to say, a generation comes and a generation goes. But he actually reverses it and says, a generation goes and a generation comes, but the earth remains forever. Why? Because the emphasis in his order is on the fact that this generation you're in is fleeting. It's going away. That's the emphasis. Another one's going to come, and then it's going to go away. It's this idea that it's always going to be replaced. That it's short that your generation is insignificant and really profits nothing. It goes away and the next generation comes. But the earth remains forever. In other words, what he's saying is he doesn't mean that the earth is eternal here. What he's talking about is this idea that there's no generation that really profits the earth, on earth, nor does the earth ever profit from any of them. There is no profit. Verse 5, look at, he goes with the sun. The sun, so he's dealt with the earth, now the sun. Verse 5, the sun rises... And the sun goes down, and it hastens to the place where it rises. In other words, the sun doesn't profit. Not only does the earth not profit, but the sun doesn't. It rises and it goes down, and it rises and it goes down. It just keeps on going in this cycle and has no gain. No rest, no gain. It gets no good from it. So the earth doesn't profit at all. The sun doesn't profit at all. Then he goes on. He wants to deal with the wind. Verse 6, the wind blows to the south. And goes around to the north. Around and around goes the wind. On, on its circuits, the wind returns. So he's dealt with east and west. Now he's dealing with north and south. He's dealt with earth. Now he's dealing with sun. And now he's dealing with wind. The wind goes where it goes. And just seems to circle around. It gains nothing. It's like, now that I've dealt with that, I'm going to deal with the water. Look at verse 7. All streams run to the sea, but the sea is not full. To the place where the streams flow, there they flow again. In other words, you see these streams constantly pouring into the sea, and the sea never is full. And it always, there's evaporation, it goes back, and it's always needing to be refilled, right? It's never done. It's a constant cycle. It's a constant cycle. The rivers and the streams pour into the sea, never gets full. There's no real profit, no real gain. What's interesting here is what he's doing that you may not notice if you're not familiar if you're not familiar with ancient philosophy. Because he deals with these four elements, doesn't he? Earth, right? Light or sun, right? He deals with wind, and he deals with um, water, okay? So he's, he's dealing with the fire, with the earth, the wind, and the water. He's dealing with all four of these elements in the ancient world. And he's also dealing with something else, motion or activity, they're in motion and activity. Why does that matter? If, if, you go back, if you go back to what they call the pre-Socratic philosophers, pre-Socratic meaning prior to Socrates. You have heard of Socrates, right? Okay, if, at least if you've seen Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventure, you've heard of Socrates, right? Okay, so that's Socrates, right? So, Socrates, <laughs> you guys thought that was great, huh, Mendoza's? Yeah, good, yeah. <laughs> Nerdy enough to follow, good. All right. So you have the pre-Socratics, the guys before Socrates. Those guys are mostly from the school of Miletus. It's, it, that includes like Thales and Anaximander and Anaximenes. And, and then you come after that, you have Pythagoras and several other pre-Socratic philosophers. And what they would argue about is what's the most basic, and I'm going to use some very un language, but basically what's the most basic element of life? 
What's it all about? And they would posit earth, depending on who they are, earth, wind, fire, or water. They would have these discussions about this. And then some guys started getting into the discussion about motion and activity and the way things were in motion activity is what's essential. Is what's essential. And what you notice is, it's interesting, is this preacher is writing about these things before the pre-Socratic philosophers were writing about these things. Before the Greek philosophers. You take a philosophy class, you're going to find out that the earliest philosopher was Thales. That's according to Socrates. Right? Was a Greek philosopher. This guy is writing arguably, arguably three to six hundred years earlier than Thales, depending on the view you take of the author of the text. At least 300 years earlier than Thales. About the same ideas. In fact, if you go back to Moses, Moses wrote a thousand years earlier than Thales about monotheism, about a God who created everything with a purpose. These guys were doing philosophy far before the Greeks ever came along. And what he's saying philosophically is that there are four elements in a constant state of activity. They're in a constant state of activity and there's a cosmic exertion that is occurring and it profits or gains nothing. In other words, if all the activity of the universe profits the universe nothing, then surely we gain nothing from all our toil. What the preacher does, he basically comes in and argues that all this, all these cycles in nature and all your work doesn't do anything but wear you out and then you die. That sound encouraging? Look at verse 8. All things are full of weariness. A man cannot utter it. In other words, it's so wearying and there's so much activity, you just can't even utter it. There's not, not enough to say. Then he goes on and says, The eye is not satisfied with seeing. There's no way you get done with that. And the ear, nor the ear filled with hearing. All natural and human activity is really without, some, without any profit really profits you nothing, that's what he's saying, under the sun, apart from God. But then the question comes up, but isn't there some profit in all the things that have gone before or in the things that are going to come after? Isn't there something unprofitable from history or from the things that will be new, the future? Doesn't history have some value? Won't future ideas and inventions have some value, even in a secular perspective? And he comes out and he answers emphatically, no. Look what he says in verse 9. What has been is what will be. And what has been done is what will be done. And there is nothing new under the sun. Now, if, if you're a philosophy major in here, he's not being Hegelian, okay? So we're not going there. What he's doing is he's making an argument that essentially, essentially, there, it's just this stuff happens and there's new things, and then there's old things, and there's new th- and it just things get repeated over and over again. There's really no real forward progress, and any real forward progress doesn't matter anyway. Doesn't really matter anyway. Look, look what he goes on and says. There's an objection to that. But isn't there a thing of which it is said, see, this is new, verse 10? And the answer, it's already been in the ages before us, and there's no remembrance of former things nor will there be any remembrance of latter things yet to be. Who cares? goes on and says, among those who come after. There's not going to be any remembrance of it in a real sense. And he's not saying that all of history is going to be fully forgotten, nor is he saying there won't be something in the future that people think is new and exciting. What he's saying is that the future can't be controlled, and history is never really going to be fully remembered. 
And frankly, what difference does it make anyway? That's the question he's getting at. You will soon be dead. And when you're dead, what difference does any of it make anyway? Other generations will go and come. It'll all be left behind, redone, undone, forgotten. When you're dead, none of this work adds up to anything for you. It profits you nothing. And you won't even really benefit future generations that much. And even if you do benefit them somewhat, so what? They're going to be dead too. Do you hear the preacher's argument? Apart from God, all your toil, all your work is worthless. It profits you nothing. It might have a little breath or a little substance like a breath on a cold morning. You see it, and it's gone. And Jesus teaches the same truth, doesn't he? He comes along and he asks this question. Jesus, the wisdom of God, we're told, asks this question. What will it profit a man? What gain does he have? If he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul, what difference does it make to him if he gets everything and this life is it? Profits him nothing. If he forfeits his soul, it actually is to his detriment, isn't it? He expands on this in Luke chapter 12, so I want you to turn there, Luke chapter 12, and hear how he expands on it. We'll sort of finish with this passage. Luke chapter 12 and verse 13. Someone in the crowd said to him, this is talking to Jesus, Teacher, tell my brother to, to divide the inheritance with me. In other words, this guy wants his brother to divide the inheritance, Okay. You all know what that's like. But he said to a man, who made me a judge or arbiter over you? I mean, why should I be dividing people's inheritances? And then he goes on, he said to them, take care and be on your guard against all covetousness. That's the desire to have something that's not yours. For one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. And he told them a parable saying, the land of a rich man produced plentifully. And the rich man thought to himself, what shall I do? For I have nowhere to store my crops. In other words, he had so much material gain, he didn't have enough places to keep it all. And the man said, verse 18, I will do this. I will tear down my barns and build larger ones. And there I will store all my grain and my goods. And I will say to my soul, soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, be merry. But God said to him, fool, this night your soul is required of you and the things you've prepared, whose will they be? You can't take them with you. You're gonna leave them behind to other people and you're not really gonna benefit them because they're gonna die too and they can't take them with them either. So is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. You hear that? When your life has nothing to do with him and you're just laying up 
treasure for yourself here. When your life is about you in the here and now and has nothing to do with him, when you think you're gonna find your relaxation, your rest, your comfort, your security, your joy in the things of this world, you're a fool. Your life may be required of you this very night. All of that is vain and futile. All of your work, all of your life profits you nothing apart from God. But that wasn't the way it was supposed to be. Let me be clear about this. God created us. Now I want you to hear this in the picture of the story of the gospel. God created us in the garden and told us to work. And that work, because it was in him for his glory, profited us eternally with him. But we sinned. We said it isn't enough. I want to accumulate more for myself. I'm not interested in you. And what did he do? He cursed us. And what's interesting is, he doesn't say to Adam, Adam, you're cursed in this way. What he says to Adam is, Adam, cursed is the ground because of you. You're going to work it and eat off it by the sweat of your brow. You're going to toil and work, and it's going to produce thorns and thistles, and it's going to make life hard for you, and there really will be no gain. Your life will amount to nothing. That's what he's saying. And then there will be the judgment. And so God tells this to him. At the same time, God gives a promise. He tells Adam, the end of it all, from, you're from dust and you're going to return to dust. That's going to be your gain. But then he tells him, but I'm going to make you a promise. There is a, there is a man who's coming to the seed of the woman. One who will crush the head of the serpent. That's Satan. I am promising to send you a Messiah. A man who will live perfectly where you failed to. Live perfectly where you failed to. A man who will glorify me, whose all his work will profit him. Not only will his work profit him for himself, his work will profit him for you all. And he's coming. And he's going to go to the cross and he's going to pay the penalty for your sin. Hear that? He's going to pay the penalty for it. And when you look to him, you're going to be forgiven. And he's not only going to do that, he's going to rise from the grave. He's going to conquer sin and death so that there will be a resurrected body, so that when you look to him in faith, you're forgiven for your sins, you're declared righteous in him, and one day you're promised that you will raise to eternal life and you will work the earth anew with God forever, eternally profiting. Hear that? Eternal. That's the story. But the problem is, is that <laughs> we are people who are in this time, in this age, where our work profits us nothing apart from him. It wasn't supposed to be that way. It's not how it was supposed to be. It, this wasn't, by the way, when Jesus came along and told this gospel story, when the apostles told this gospel story, and they said, this is wisdom. Here it is. Look to Jesus. Follow him, you'll be forgiven. You'll be declared righteous. Your labor, as Paul can say in 1 Corinthians, will not be in vain will not be in vain. It'll be worth something. When they told that story, do you think the world around them said, finally, wisdom? You know what the world said? That's foolishness. So Paul writes 1 Corinthians chapter 1, what does he say? He talks about the foolishness of the cross. That's foolishness. 
are you Christian people really saying that there's only one way? This is a secular culture in the first century and the gospel is given. They're pluralists. The greatest offense the Christians brought to the table was the claim of exclusivity, that there's one way. You're really saying that that's it? That Jesus is our hope? So yes, that's what we're saying. It may seem like foolishness to you, but it's the wisdom of God. Look to him. Look to him. If you're looking to Jesus in faith, your work has value. Everything you do in him for God's glory has value. It pleases God and it accrues for you treasure in heaven where moth does not eat it or consume it and where rust does not destroy it. But if you're, looking to, if you're not looking to Jesus in faith, did you hear this? Those of you who aren't believers, what the Bible says to you, what Jesus, the God-man says to you, is your life is a vapor, sheer vanity. Here today, gone tomorrow. And it may be required of you tonight. If it is, if it is required of you tonight, what value would it have brought you? Hmm? All your work, all your education, all your efforts, what value would it have brought you if it's required from you this, this day? It would have brought you none. None. But if you look to Jesus, if you look to him, you are profited with all the riches of God. Yeah? That's wisdom. Jesus Christ. Let me pray. Father, we ask for your help in trusting you Father, we, we so often don't believe we, <laughs> we need you to help us with our unbelief. Help us to trust in you, look to you. Help us to know that Jesus is the wisdom of God. He is our hope. That apart from him, it's all vain. Father, help us root out all of the inconsistencies in our own life in which we are living practically like atheists. Help us to live for Jesus so that he would be exalted, so that we would be saved. Pray this in your name. Amen.